Well, happy 4th of July weekend to everyone. Um, I've got my America shirt on today, so hopefully maybe you've got something as well too. I know a lot of people checking us out online today because of the vacation and stuff. Um, Today is actually a a separate holiday. I don't know if you knew this, but July 3rd is uh, Air Conditioning Appreciation Day. And I think it kind of goes hand in hand with the fact that tomorrow's 4th of July, you're going to be outside in the sun barbecuing. So I think they made a good call in putting those too close together. Uh, I want to start here, though, with just, uh, I'm just curious about what was your favorite show growing up? All right, take a few moments. I want you to think about what was your favorite show, and then uh, on the count of three, I want you to just shout it out, okay? So I'll give you a couple seconds. Think about what was your favorite show growing up, all right? Everyone got it in your mind. Okay, on the count of three, just shout out, blurt it out. You can be as quiet or as loud as you want. Okay, ready? One, two, three. Someone up front yelled Power Rangers. That's the only thing I got and whatnot. But uh, yeah. So I grew up in the golden era of cartoons, I feel like, uh, like the, 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 the mid-early 90s where like everything I watched was a cartoon. It's when like Nickelodeon was at its heyday. There was Hey Arnold, Doug, uh, Rocket Power, if you're familiar with that. That really resonated with me growing up in Southern California. Now, this was all before the days of streaming. When I was in high school, TiVo had like just became a thing and it made that weird bloop, bloop, bloop noise, you know, if you ever had one. Like, but that was like a luxury. Like no one could ever. And so what that meant was if you had a favorite show, you had to like plan your week around it. You had to be at home in front of the TV. You had to get everyone else out of the room with the controller so that you could watch your show. And it was kind of a disappointment because uh, when you stayed at home, for, from, like when you were sick at, from school, you were kind of out of options. It's like every channel has like, hey, you know what's a great idea? For seven hours, let's play Days of Our Lives. Or for like, hey, let's just, we don't care what anyone watches during the day, so let's just watch reruns over and over of Judge Judy, right? Anybody in here ever see Judge Judy uh, before? You're probably maybe familiar with her. She's she's labeled as the most um, famous judge of all time, the wealthiest judge of all time, and she kind of got her, her motto for 25 seasons. Let me say that again. 25 seasons, this woman ruled daytime television with an iron fist. She was known for that no-nonsense approach in the courtroom. Well, today where we pick up in our study in the book of Acts, if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 7. We're actually hopping into a courtroom scene. There's a man on trial by the name of Stephen. We got introduced to Stephen last week in chapter 6. Some things about who he was. He was called to be a deacon. And then we saw him go out and begin to witness to the city of Jerusalem. And now he's kind of in trouble. He's put on trial in front of this group of people called the Sanhedrin. It was 70 Jewish leaders back then, back in the ancient uh, time of of Israel, where again, we're about like, I don't know, a couple months after Jesus' resurrection at this point. And they were kind of holding court because Stephen had kind of done some no-nos. And in week one, though, I want to take you all the way back to week one. We talked about in the book of Acts, every single disciple, every single Christian, every single follower of Jesus is called to be one thing. And that was called to be a witness. 
Now, it comes from this Greek word here, martus. And the word martus is where we oftentimes get our word martyr. And sometimes when we think of martyr, we think of just someone who's willing to die for something. But that's not what it means. That in order to live as a witness from either death or from, from life all the way to the point of death, we are all called to be a martus. We are all called to be a witness to the gospel message to who Jesus was. And we're going to see the first time, the first person who is faced with the challenge to actually live as a witness until he takes his very last breath. So we're picking up in Acts chapter 7 this morning, kicking off in verse 1, it says this. It says, then the high priest, this would have been Caiaphas, the guy who would have arrested Jesus. He's still around, he's still kicking, and so then he gets into with it with Stephen. The high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? If you were to flip back to chapter 6, verses 11 through 14, you would hear these charges that Stephen was causing blasphemy against Moses, blasphemy against the law of God, and blasphemy against this place, what they said, which would have represented the temple back then for trying to change the customs of Moses. And blasphemy against God, against the Jewish people, against the temple was a very serious crime that the punishment for blasphemy, if true, if found guilty of those charges, that punishment was death. Let me ask you, though, what would you do? What would you do if you knew you were unequivocally right in a conversation? Like, what would you do if you were out doing something and you knew without a shadow of a doubt you were in the right, everything you were saying was true? Now, I'm married, so I have no idea what that's like, but my wife does. Can we all just agree, agree to that? Right? Like, what would you do? Like, if you were just unequivocally right in a conversation and someone was holding something against you that was categorically false, perhaps you've experienced that in your life at some point. Perhaps you faced something where you are living true and right and good and then someone else is charging something against you. Maybe you've been there before. See, I think most of us, we would want to defend ourselves. Let me tell you why you are wrong and why I am right. Let me tell you why you, you are saying is off base. And Stephen does something very curious in this moment. Are the charges true? Are you blaspheming against Moses? Are you blaspheming against the Jewish ancestors? Is this true? And instead of defending himself, Stephen chooses to lean into that call to live as a martus to a witness. He does arguably the hardest and the greatest call of a martus because he defends the gospel, not himself, all the way to his death. And this is the story of Stephen. Some of you might be familiar with Stephen, the first Christian martyr. He is a martus all the way until becoming the first martyr. And from here, we can read from, from Acts uh, 7, verse 2, all the way basically to the end of the chapter is Stephen's speech. It's not a speech or defense of himself. Let me tell you why you guys are wrong. Let me tell you uh, why, why you guys have me not all figured out. Instead, he defends the gospel, but he does it in such a brilliant way because he paints a panorama of the Old Testament. And we're not going to go through it verse by verse today because we don't have like seven hours as much as I would love to. You know, there's like some barbecuing that you got to get ready for, all that type of stuff. But he paints a picture as if to say, let me, let me meet you guys on your turf. Let me speak your language. You guys follow the Old Testament. 
You guys know the Torah. Most of you have, have memorized the first five books of the Bible. You follow all of those patriarchs to a T. So let me step into your world and show you how you have missed the point of faith. How you have misunderstood what it means to be a witness and a follower of God. So he uses these cameos, so to speak, of these Old Testament heroes. And he paints this picture, this panorama, saying, you missed the point. All of that was pointing us to Jesus, and you have missed out. So he gives this panorama in, three, in two different ways, and he says, first and foremost, you need to, I need to remind you that there are three pillars of what he says of the ancient Jewish faith. There is the land, this idea that there is a physical land that God had promised to his people. If you want to be the people of Israel, you will go to the promised land. There is a place in which I have set apart. It is flowing with milk and honey. That is the place you are to live and to rear and to build up the people of God. So the second pillar is there are covenants, and these covenants are very different, but they exist. There's the covenant of the law. The law was a covenant given to God's people. There's the covenant of circumcision. These covenants were things that God is saying, this is how you will know that I am living with you and you with me. And then number three, there is always, though, the promise of God's presence, that if you live obedient to me, I will always be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so, so what, what, what he does is he goes, let me remind you of the three pillars. And then he says, but there's also three people. There's Abraham, where it kind of all started. The man chosen for the father of the people of Israel. He was the first. Then there's the patriarch, Jacob's tribe, the 12 tribes of Israel. And then there was Moses, the one who receives the law. And so what Stephen kind of does is he says, you guys missed the point though. Because by the time it got to Jesus, the time of Jesus, the religious people had distorted these three pillars. They had distorted these three people to the point in which they were the ones who were seen as the saviors and not faith in God itself. And it began to be this, this picture in which they would have said, you need to look like us, act like us, play like us before you can be a part of us. You know, I, I enjoy the, the occasional good round of golf. Now, I'm not very good at it, but I enjoy golfing. And I started golfing uh, in, in, in college. And um, one of my, our friends, they had a, a, a connection at the probably arguably one of the most exclusive country clubs in all of Knoxville. Because I went to school down in Knoxville, Tennessee. And uh, so we went and we, they got us all. We were super excited. This place was super nice. We could never even imagine playing there. So we walked into the clubhouse and the guy starts giving us all the rules. Because he's like, okay, clearly I know da, 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 you guys aren't from around here and, and that type of stuff and never seen you before. So here's kind of the rules. And he's going through all the rules. He's like, okay, so this is how you do this and this is where you go for this. And he says, there's no swearing on the premises. And we looked at each other like, you know, this is golf, right? And he's like, and then he's like, just in the clubhouse, you know, that type of stuff. And so we go over, and so, and then he's all right, well, you guys have any questions? We said, no, he goes, okay, why don't you just uh, go have fun? And we said, okay, great. As we're walking out, the guy gets my attention and does one of these, like, come back here. I was like, okay, this is weird. And so, so I go back up and I said, yeah, like, did we miss something? And he just says, uh, he goes, hey, do you, do you have any of your rain gear on you? And rain gear is the stuff that you put over your outfit so that you can stay dry if, like, the, the rain starts coming in. And I said, no, I don't. And I said, can I ask why? And he says, your buddy's in jeans. And that was a big no-no, right? And so he said, hey, like, your tea time is in 40 minutes. And so either he needs to go change or he can't play. 
And it was this way to say, we've got rules. You need to look like us before you can belong. Now, I'm not harping on country clubs or any of that type of stuff, but I'm using it as an example to say that's kind of what the Jewish tradition said. You need to look like us, act like us, play the part before you get to be a part. And Stephen's speech goes as far as to say, you have completely missed it. They were saying you need to live in the right place, live in the right way, go to the right places from time to time, then you will receive the right to God's presence. And Stephen says, no, that's not it. He said, I'll even prove it to you, that even on your turf, even on your terms in the Old Testament, that's not the way it is. And so Stephen, he gives this overview, this flyover of the Old Testament, and we're going to get a flyover of the flyover. So we're going like 60,000 feet here. So uh, we're going to start in chapter 7, verse 2. We're going to hop around and cover those three pillars real quickly here this morning. Starting in verse 2, it says this. It says, to this, he, being Stephen, replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even enough ground to set his foot on, but God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at this time Abraham had no child. Skip to verse 9. It says, so because of the patriarchs, so we're skipping from Abraham and land, and now we're going to, to the, the, the family of Jacob, the patriarchs. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph's, that's all of Joseph's brothers, sold them into slavery, technicolor, dream coat, yeah, that whole story. They sold him as a slave into Egypt, but God was with him. And he rescued him from all of his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. We're going to skip to the next portion in verse 23. So we're going now to Moses. It says, when Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian. So he went uh, to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came and two Israelites were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, men, are you brothers? Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man man, who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian where he settled as a foreigner and he had two sons. In verse 37, 38, 39, it says, This is Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly of the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai with the ancestors, receiving the living words to pass on to us, the Ten Commandments, the Torah. But to our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. First off, what Stephen is trying to point the, paint the picture is that you have been following broken saviors. Abraham disobeyed God when God made it very clear not to. Joseph made some pretty poor decisions along the way. Moses was a murderer. Why are you relying on those people to be your form of salvation? But the second thing is you see the pattern that Stephen is trying to point out in his defense of the gospel. 
And that, it's that, that the problem is never God's plan. The problem is people's inability to follow it. And isn't that the message of the gospel in a nutshell? If we were to summarize, what is the gospel message? It's that God had an original plan and intent for all creation, including you and I. And that plan and that intent was to live in peace, in shalom, in harmony with God. But the first humans, Adam and Eve, they decided, no, 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 we're going to break that plan and go our own way. And sin was introduced. And so God says, okay, now I need to come through. I'm going to create a means. I'm going to create this thing called grace. I'm going to show it to you throughout all of history so that you may have faith and be restored with me. And so Stephen is making a very clear gospel-centered point that Jesus has been and is the only answer. And that really ticked them off. He's in this court painting this picture, very crystal clear that you have completely messed up. You're following the wrong thing. You've put the wrong emphasis on the wrong syllable. And you think that I'm in the wrong. He paints this picture that Jesus broke the pattern of broken saviors. Think about how Jesus flipped all three of those pillars of land, law, and presence. The Sanhedrin was saying, you need to come here to be saved. You need to be in this place to be saved. You need to be in Jerusalem in order to belong. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. Go and make disciples. Go and make disciples of all nations. The law said, okay, well, you need to look like us. You need to act like us. You need to behave before you can belong. Jesus says, no, no, you missed the point. The point of the law isn't to show you how to be saved. It's the fact that you need someone else to save you. I did not come to abolish the law, Jesus says. I came to fulfill it. That the only way you can be made right with God is through me. The presence of God. They were saying, you got to come to the right church. you got to go to the right temple in order to receive the presence of God. And Stephen's like, nope. Missed it again, strike three. Jesus said, I will tear down this temple and rebuild it in three days. When Jesus was resurrected on his crucifixion, the temple veil was torn into signifying the spirit of God lives in anyone who believes. None of those things were ever intended to save. It always has been, is, and will be the grace and faith in God. But unfortunately, I think our response can sometimes be like the Sanhedrin. We dig into the customs that we're comfortable with and think those are the answers. Picking back up in in 51, uh, and we're going to kind of wrap up Stephen's speech here. He says this. So he says, you stiff-necked people. This is is kind of intense here. He's, 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 He's not holding back at this point. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed him and murdered him. You have received the law that was given through angels, but you have not obeyed it. Skip to verse 59, it says, so then while they were stoning him, so they got super angry, they got super upset to the point, they're like, we got to kill this guy. 
While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. And when he said this, he fell asleep. The custom of stoning, not to be too gruesome, was more than just a few pebbles being thrown your way until it pummeled you to death. The way that stoning worked is they dug a hole 10 to 12 feet deep, straight down. They would take you to the edge of town. They would turn your back, and then they would proceed to literally kick you face down into the dirt, partially hoping that the fall would somehow kill you. And if it didn't work, then someone, usually the high priest or someone he selected, was charged to grab a large rock, go down into the ditch, and drop it directly onto your heart. If that didn't kill you, then everyone else would proceed to pick up stones and throw them until they found your body lifeless. Stephen was a martus, all the way to the point of being a martyr choosing not to defend himself, choosing to reject the customs of that age, saying that I will build my life and my eternity on nothing else than the good message of Jesus Christ. Stephen's message was direct. Stephen's message was powerful. Stephen's message cut them to the heart, to the point that they were so upset that they broke the Roman law to kill him without approval because Stephen's message was the gospel. Remember, Stephen's not talking to prostitutes here. Stephen's not talking to the worst of the worst. He's not talking to murderers. He's not talking to insurrectionists. He's talking to highly churched, scripture-memorizing people because they had missed the point of following God. He's painted this picture. You've missed all the signs You refuse to connect the dots, and because of your pride, because of your stiff-necked nature, it's led you to the point of having so much anger that you chose to kill a man. You don't need another sign. You need a humble heart before God. That all of God's attempts to save people, they failed, not because God failed, but because they ran the other direction. Don't you and I sometimes play the sign game with God? Perhaps we don't lean on the customs of old, but maybe you do. Well, I'm good because my grandparents went to church. I'm okay because mom and dad took me to VBS as a kid. Maybe the sign game is a little bit different. Well, God, if you fix that thing in my life, then I'll really start going to church. Well, God, if you take away that thing first, then I'll really find a way to serve you. Well, God, this is going on over here, and so if you come through, then I'll trust and believe you. Then I'll start to give. Then I'll start to live a life after you. And Stephen's point to the, to, to the Sanhedrin is the same point to us, is that you can know all the right things and still end in the wrong place. You can know all of the right things about the Bible. You can know all the right things about God. You can know all the right things about following Jesus and still end in the wrong place. 
There's this cliche thing that sometimes people say. It's like, well, Christianity, it's not a religion, it's a relationship. Perhaps you've heard that before. Maybe you've said that before. And I think I, think I get the heartbeat of that. Because the goal of following Jesus isn't to check a bunch of boxes. And that is what religion kind of connotates, right? Have you done all the right things in the right order? Have you checked enough boxes today, this week, this month, this year in your life for you to be okay with God? The relationship side is like, no, 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 that's where transformation comes from. Transformation happens in relationship. And one of the things we've said here for some time is that being a disciple of Jesus, being a transformed disciple requires two things, but it actually, it requires a third. And you're going to start hearing these three things a lot from us in the future. You've heard these two. We've always said that a disciple is someone who needs to have the right head knowledge that leads to heart change. Right? And we, we've drawn that, that head knowledge should lead us to changing our life. And then as we change our life, we want to know more about God and it goes back and forth. But I was convicted that there's something missing. Because when I think about these two, there's one obvious thing that we are called to as a church, that we are called to as disciples, that I know for a fact in my own life is sometimes missing. And it's this third piece. It's an H because, you know, they all got to start with H's. They all got to alliterate and that type of stuff. And it's this, it's helpful accountability. Because here's why the helpful accountability part is important. Is I bet you're just like me that you need people in your life helping you pursue that head knowledge and heart change. That we are not called to go through faith alone and try to grit it out and keep it to ourselves, but we need people in our lives. Now there's a reason we call it helpful accountability. Because there's certain forms of accountability that aren't helpful. There's certain forms of accountabilities that just make you feel bad. You did the wrong thing again and again and again. But we want accountability to always be bathed in grace, in understanding, in patience with one another, but also for it to meet us in our hunger, in our desire, in our humility to follow Jesus. You and I, we cannot do faith alone. We cannot pursue Jesus alone. But it's not enough to have all the right things up here. We need it in here in our lives too. So that as we step forward in our life with Jesus, you have people who have your back. You have people who can look you in the face and say, you need to pick it up. You need to lean into this power of the Spirit. You need to use those gifts. You need to find your God-given purpose in this life. You see, what the Sanhedrin did is they made these people saviors, broken people who were merely a foreshadowing of the savior that was to come. And sometimes we have a habit of doing that with New Testament people. Well, yeah, maybe not Moses, maybe not, but Stephen, you need to be a Stephen. And if Stephen was here, he would be saying, yeah, don't don't be like me. I don't exist for you to be like me. I exist for you to be like Christ. You see, Stephen isn't necessarily our savior, He certainly is not our Savior, but he is an example. This is what it says about Stephen in chapter 6, verses 5 and verse 8. Just kind of attributes of who Stephen was. It says this, that the proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Verse 8 said this about Stephen. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Stephen is not our savior, but he is our example of living that transformed life, pursuing Jesus. 
We might say things like, I could never be like Stephen. Uh, I could never be a witness. I could never be a martyr to the point of death. But let me remind us all today that living a bold life doesn't have to be a daydream. And it doesn't have to be a nightmare either. That your life doesn't have to be on the line in order for you or me to live a life full of faith. Because you and I have more in common with Stephen than perhaps we give ourselves credit for. That we have the same Savior as Stephen. In John chapter 3, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. You and I have the same Savior or the same Spirit of the Savior living in us. Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Living in, this isn't an asterisk, this isn't to say, but if you're on the road to becoming a martyr, then you get the fullness of the Spirit. It's that if you have faith in the grace of Jesus Christ, that Spirit lives in you. And you and I are a part of the same story and the same mission as Stephen. Be a witness to the ends of the earth. Go and make disciples. You see, a life of faith isn't just about checking the right boxes. It's not do you live in the right place. It's not do you go to the right church. Do you do the right things occasionally. Rather, it's a commitment to pursue Jesus more today than you did yesterday. Let me give you an illustration on that. Like what makes for a good marriage? Think about, maybe you would say that your marriage is strong. Or maybe you know someone who's like, man, they just seem to have such a strong marriage. The strength in the marriage is, did you check the right boxes today? We, we, we went to bed at the same time, check. We didn't yell at each other this week, check. We balanced our, our checking accounts together, check. The strength in a marriage is not, did you do the right things? The strength in the marriage is the commitment to one another. Through thick and thin, through death do us part. The strength in a good marriage is the commitment to say, I will pursue you above all else. The strength of a good marriage is not, did you do your part? And did I do my part? And hopefully those two parts make a whole. The strength of a good marriage is I will give 100% regardless because I am committed to living with you. I'm committed to pursuing you. I'm committed to loving you more today than I did the day before. And a life of faith is the same way. Jesus has made his commitment to us abundantly clear by dying on the cross. And he says, now you do the same. Don't just check a few boxes and go about your life. Lean into me in the life I have called you to. You see, when it comes down to it, I believe that the Sanhedrin, what they got wrong is, A, they got Jesus wrong. He was, in fact, the one and only way to be saved. But I think what was more wrong was their unrelenting hearts to live a way of life following Jesus. So when we talk about discipleship, when we talk about what did Stephen embody, he embodied how Jesus lived, and that's what discipleship is all about. The discipleship is living like Jesus. In his truest definitions, if you want to know, hey, you use this word disciple all the time, what does it mean to be a disciple? How do I know if I am a disciple? It's simple. Are you living like Jesus? Are you living like Jesus or not? You know, when I talk to people about faith and they give me their disputes, 
about perhaps Jesus or the Bible, it's often one side of the same coin. One side, and perhaps you have experienced this, perhaps there's someone in your life who has shared this with you, when they say, you know, I'm pretty cool with Jesus. I don't mind the Bible. But Christians don't really seem like they act like they're supposed to. The other side of the coin is, you know, it's not really so much faith in God and and science and how that comes. It's not the historicity. I think there's a sense of knowing if I do believe this book to be true, if I do believe this book to be infallible, if I do believe this book to be inherent, if I do believe what this book says, then I'm going to have to change my life. I'm going to have to change the pillars I've built everything upon, and that becomes the greatest stumbling block in following Christ. I don't want to change how I live. I like the pillars that I've established. I like the customs that I've put into motion. But Jesus says, I've got a better life for you in store. A life committed to love and to obey Jesus more today than the day before. The word disciple means to be an apprentice, to become like your master. And where the Sanhedrin got it wrong is they didn't want anybody to lord over them except themselves. But Jesus says, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full, but I must be your Lord. Stephen knew that. Stephen understood that call to the point in which he was receiving rocks to his body and he did not throw hurling threats back. He did not use choice words. Instead, he said, forgive them, Lord. Do not hold this against them. The same words that Jesus used as he took his final breath on the cross. A transformed life in relationship. I want to close with this passage this morning. Galatians chapter 2, verses 20 through 21. The Apostle Paul puts it this way. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be attained through the law, Christ died for nothing. As I was reflecting on this message, I was reflecting on my own life, and I had this one thought, is I have a lot of box-checking mentality that I need to uncheck, if that makes sense. I've got a lot of things that I, okay, I did that, did that, did that, And that's not to say discipline is a bad thing. That's not to say systems need to be completely fleshed out of our lives. That's not to say we only do spiritual things if we feel like it or in the mood. But rather this idea that we are called to live life with Jesus. Because his spirit lives in us. is so much greater than did I check my boxes this week or not. So this is what I want to close with as we enter into our time of communion. Let me remind you, as I remind myself in this moment, that the God of this Bible, that the spirit of Jesus Christ, the spirit of the living God who rose from the grave, the spirit of the living God, 
who if you confess your sin, repent through grace and faith, you are made new, you are restored. That spirit lives in you. And you get to experience that grace. You get to experience that love, that life that I'm sure Stephen felt that while his life was on the line, he was still able to pursue a Christ-like way of living. It's time for us to live like that. It's time for us to cherish Jesus in the way that Stephen did. It's time for us to say, God, you and you alone are worth my life. Help me to love you today more than I did yesterday. We're going to enter into our time of communion. So if you have your elements, I invite you to get those out with me this morning. And I want to uh, just set it up this way. A timer is going to come on the screen for three minutes. And over those, those three minutes, we encourage you to do what you feel led to do. You can pray, you can kneel. There are prayer benches here at the front of the stage. If you want to come before God and kneel and just say, God, I want to give this over to you, we encourage you to do that during this time. But I want to just leave you with this final thought as we go into communion, and it's this. It's that God loves you. He died on the cross to give you new life. What does it look like for us to continue to pursue him with every breath that we have, one day after another, into the power and the grace that he provides? Let me pray for us as we continue to worship this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for people like Stephen who exemplify this, this call to live life as a disciple. Lord, none of us are perfect, not even close. And yet you loved us. You sent your son, you sent yourself to die on our behalf to fulfill that land, to fulfill that law, to always be present with us through your spirit. We cannot thank you enough for that. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive me, Lord, for the times in which I've made it about me. Forgive us. Forgive me, Lord, the times in which we've made it about perhaps our comforts or what feels natural, what feels cultural. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive me, Lord, the times in which We've just checked a few boxes and went about our life. Lord, you gave us so much more. You deserve so much more. We thank you that our life with you is not built upon how many boxes we've checked. That our life with you is not built upon how many times we've made it about checking boxes. Lord, we thank you that it's built grace that you've given to us, to all people throughout all history, out of your great love and passion for your creation. Lord, may we experience your spirit this morning. May we be bold enough to go before you in prayer, to confess what we need to confess, to hear from you what we need to hear from you. Give us a sense of what you need in calling us to live obedient to you one day after another for you and your glory. Make us disciples like Stephen.
your face shines upon us because that is the true treasure that we seek. It's your name that we pray.